0: or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks, dating back to 1996.
1: Before we hear from our speaker, it's our custom to go around and introduce ourselves. Uh, I'm Marvin Snow. Doug Hall. Bob Cidolcan. <coughs>
2: I'm Carl Wolf. <laughs> Joe Good.
3: George Over Lee Robbins. Jim Weir. son, it's good to be here. James Stewart. Jim Fisherman.
4: Norman uh, Bill Childs. Roy King,
5: Carl Clinton,
4: Peter Washburn, Johnny Kim, Cliff Sider, Alan Klein,
6: <coughs> Emilio Gonzalez, Paul Shepard, David
7: Margolis, Andrew Wagner, Paul, Jerry Jones, Jack Busby. <laughs> Larry Wish, Peter
1: <David laughs> Dean Elvey, <Amelby>. Michael Sue, <coughs> Michael <Sula>. Rich Aronell,
0: Robert Martin. Michael Murphy. Anthony. Peter Dell. Josh Alexander. Brian D. Davis.
1: John Westner. Yes. Bob Hamilton. Yeah. Thank you. Is there anyone here for the first time or somebody who's recently returned after a long absence? Could you especially reintroduce yourselves? Alan Pine. Pleased to have you here today.
8: And
1: yeah. Michael Sue. Welcome. Welcome. And Paul. Okay, if (coughs) our members can make them feel welcome uh, in social time afterwards, that'd be great. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Okay. So today's today's speaker is David Cooperberg. Dave's uh, been in a meditation practice since the early 1970s when he became a member of the community of Yanjoji in Sonoma County, the Zen community there. He has a psychotherapy practice that goes back to the 70s, long-standing practice. And in 1990, he helped to form a group of meditators called the Gay Men's Meditation Retreat that still continues to have a small twice-yearly retreats. Dave, uh, you're planning to help us explore how we can bring mindfulness as a practice into our lives and the world, right? Something like Something. that. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
6: Well tell us. That's all
9: yours. Okay. Um before I get into it I do I want to say a few words, but I tend to work better if I get feedback, you know, or questions and back and forth with the people. So hopefully this will morph into a discussion rather than just me talking. I've heard myself talk, so I know what I have to say. Um, the you know, when Jim invited me to talk here, I don't exactly know how it came up, but the term practice came up. And that's really what i have been thinking about coming here, because I, the meditation practice, obviously, but also that's the term that people use for doing psychotherapy, this practice. And there are actually a lot of other practices. And I think it's very tied into that term mindfulness. Um, but I want to say a little bit about first of all, I mentioned mention my I do psychotherapy in private practice and I've been doing it in private practice since the late 70s um, working primarily with gay men and more recently last few years, bringing in more directly I should say, because it's always been a lot of what I've learned about meditation and a lot of the teachings about the meditation practice because they're really teachings about the mind and the more we understand the mind the more the Creative freedom not to be run by it. I right, think but that's a simple way of putting it. Um, the meditation retreats you mentioned actually started in the late eighties, uh, I was thinking how many years it's been eighteen years we've been doing it. And it was a spin-off from a group some of you may have been involved with it or some of you are. The Game and Spiritual Retreat community. Um, a number of us were wanted to get more into some practice and we have several different ideas, stuff on sexuality, stuff on meditation. I forget what the others were. And the meditations works for me. And So there's about, usually 12 or 13 of us go up to St. Dorothy's Rest, which is in Kent Maker, near Sebastopol. We do it twice a year. And if anyone's interested, I, I'll give you my business card. You can contact me and I can tell you more about it the next month in the other fall. Um, that's the business side. <laughs> Uh-huh. The thing about practice, you know, and the term practice is, you know, I should have sure looked up a dictionary term for it, but it's about doing something over and over again. But it isn't just about doing it to me, it's about learning and paying attention, and I think that's where mindfulness comes. So as a therapist, I ask lots of questions. Somebody says something, I don't just... It, sometimes I take it, sometimes I just ask them more what they mean by it, if they're unhappy. What are they unhappy? You know, unhappy in the relationship? What makes them unhappy? It's really about... I mean, that's an interesting aspect. I've heard people actually in the past criticize both therapy. I think, Again, I didn't pull these two together, but being in therapy as well as meditation practice as being very selfish practices because the focus is very inward, and it's all on you. I don't know how long all of you guys have been practicing, but one of the magics I find from it is, as I look at me, as I look at my mind, I learn about the mind. There's a level where being human is being human. I don't know if it goes beyond that, but being human is being human. And so as we look inward, we understand ourselves and learn to treat ourselves with compassion, it naturally flows, I think, to being compassionate with other people. And seeing people, because we all have that, because the mind is basically the same. Um. You know, as I... There's been several books I've read over the years and I don't read a lot of books. I find a few which I read over and over again, like Then Mind Beginner's Mind is one of the first ones. A more recent one is called uh, Mindfulness in, Ordina- in Plain English, Ordinary um, and I cannot pronounce the author's name. Um I have it down if you want later. And he gets into more details around the mindfulness. But for me, For me, I'm getting too much in my head right now, so I'm losing it. Um. One of the things that happened during the sitting today, someone's cell phone went off. And what it did is it brought me back to the present. And it's one of the things I have found from, again, from the practice that I find really useful is those mistakes, if you will, those interruptions are opportunities. Where was I when I was interrupted? I'm presuming most of you are coming from a Buddhist background with meditation. Um, and some of you may be coming elsewhere. But from what I've... that It's really about being present. Um, usually when I get disturbed, it's because I've gone somewhere. And in therapy, it's a similar thing. When You've had a terrible relationship. You can beat yourself up over it, or you can learn from it. And wake up. What were you going for? What did you open yourself to? And why? Well, since I'm not thinking of any clever stories right now, I was wondering if any of you had anything you'd like to say or ask about mindfulness, about being mindful.
3: So, uh, first of all, I'm the guilty person with the cell phone, so my apologies. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, what I wanted to ask about, you had talked about the, the inward focus, and one could look upon that as a selfish aspect. And so one of the things that I did for a while and don't do as much now from Sylvia Bernstein, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. uh, was generosity practice. And uh, I wondered if you might have anything to, you might care to say about that.
9: I can't say anything specifically, I've read a little bit of her stuff, mm-hmm. I've been to a workshop which was not on, it was not therapy but it was really more about that too in many ways. Um, but the word I think about is compassion. But generosity,
3: I think, lends something
9: more to it. Okay.
3: Well, we yeah. sh- she talked about, is uh, it was something that had come up with her and some students? She describes it, and one of them suggested uh, to, to do three acts of selfless generosity a day. And it didn't have to be saving the world. It could be letting somebody take the parking place, or... Yeah, not beating it, it comes up often for me. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, or smiling at the cashier in the supermarket line. And so I, I wondered if you'd have any. I don't know, it, it just struck me in, mm-hmm. in relationship to this issue of uh, the self focus versus the other's fo- focus and a, and a way to uh, actualize compassion.
9: Again, I think of the term practice. Mm-hmm. You know, actualizing compassion. Mm-hmm. I know in my life what I've done is... I was thinking the other day, I called up someone in one state bureaucracy I hadn't sent my check-in on time for some disability insurance, and after going through all those numbers and such, a woman picks up the phone, and I can hear her talking to somebody, Says, I don't know, she said, you shit, or something, something off. And I sort of laughed, and I said, I hope you're not talking to me. (laughs) And she laughed, but what it did is it opened up the communication. So on one level it's being generous, but on another level it's being very selfish. I enjoy when I can laugh with people, when I can touch, even in that moment, with the clerk, when you can make eye contact and smile. You know, it becomes not just a machine giving something, it is that touching another. So it's generosity, it's giving, but it's also taking. And I see nothing wrong with taking. That's one of my bugaboos, is that selfishness has a bad rap. When we're talking about somebody being selfish, I believe we're really talking about someone being inconsiderate. The problem with selfishness is not that I want or I take, it's that I do so in someone where I'm taking away from someone else or not being considerate of your feelings. Anything else? Want to share about mindfulness or practice?
0: Sometimes when sort of things are clear and I'm pretty centered, it, it's relatively easy to be mindful when I go to work or then I become very preoccupied with some obsessive thinking or something or other and I'm wondering if you have any suggestions how you can sort of figure out how to recognize triggers that will remind you that being more mindful would be more helpful.
9: Well, that's like, I think of are two different types of of uh, tools that can be helpful. One is very personal. Sometimes I can hear myself going in an old rap and that will remind me. So it's going to be whatever that is for you. The body, that it comes to mind, the mind. When I'm not being mindful, usually I'm sitting in a bad position and I'm starting to hurt. Um, sometimes the breath, I'm holding it and then breathing heavier. I find very simple things are useful. Sometimes, I forget who I was talking to the other day, um, I say something to someone and I can see by their reaction I wasn't being mindful. Even if they don't say anything, I can see them close down or looked angry and, I realize, and, and it makes me think, what, if anything, I can feel and that brings me back.
4: Thank you. Uh, yeah, I have a question about uh, the spiritual retreat that you've been here for 19 years. Um, I had, it, I had the pleasure of doing it last time. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I'm just curious, uh, have you seen an evolution of, of that retreat of, uh, and, and what your, your expressions <laughs> that you, that you have? I'm curious how it has evolved and, and what was it was then and, and where, where it is now and where things going.
9: Well, I'm not sure where it's going, but i tell you, it definitely has changed. Um, we never had silence except for the actual sitting, um, initially. Uh, this meditation retreat is a small group, and there's people who come fairly regularly, and then occasionally a new person comes in. And at first there was more sexual acting out, for instance. Um, there was... Uh, the time we decided to bring in silence, we decided to have a silent meal. This was a noisy silent meal you ever did, but not by words, by mind. Yeah. And one of the themes that's come up in that retreat, and it continues to be a theme, though it's dealt with differently, is there are two parts. It is a meditation retreat and it is a community. You know, the term Sangha comes to mind, but I'm always hesitant with those Sanskrit words because I think they have very special meaning for people. But we come because there's a brotherhood, there's a connection, and people want to be with each other. Sometimes we haven't seen each other since a prior retreat and talk. And what's involved, part of it with the silence, is like we have the initial Friday evening dinner, is not silent. And the people who come up Friday have a chance to... So people have a chance to schmooze, to get to know each other, to touch base. And it isn't, it's only after the potluck dinner on Friday when we you know, set the retreat... That we go towards the silence, that we you know, have less of that. But it's still a struggle because I see you and I want to reach out to you. But you know, do we? If we start talking, are we being mindful? or Are we going off? And that's been one of the things that's been going into my mind in terms of those retreats. Is there's the silence in the building, and people can go off and walk if they want to talk, so it doesn't disturb the silence for other people. But if I'm on a walk and people, someone starts talking to me. Mindful talking, I guess. Am I being mindful or am I just chattering? I mean, can most of us can get into entertaining. That can be fun. Just to be more aware of it. Anyway, those are some of the themes that have come up over the years. Before. Yeah. Maybe you should say your name before we talk.
10: Oh, uh, I'm Johnny, and I was wondering if you could define what your definition of mindfulness and then also being present? Is there, if you could give definitions for those two terms, and if there is a difference for you?
9: Good question. I'm not sure if there's a difference. I can't think of it right now. To me, well, there is a difference. It's a similar way to cover phrases that cover the similar ground. It's really about being present, but the focus in mindfulness, to me, is about... Um, it's pre-verbal, as someone wrote. It's, uh, it's about being able to experience the present just as it is. To be with that moment before the mind engages and say, oh, that's a man, or you're wearing black, or, you know, or I'm attracted or I'm not attracted, which is what the mind does. It, you know, it, and it may be some of what the mind does with it is also being mindful if I'm aware that stuff's coming up, rather than being lost in it, identifying with it, if that makes sense. So it's about being present, but in a much more powerful way. And one of the interesting things, which I really haven't figured out myself, is reading in that book I mentioned about mindfulness and planning, and she talks about concentration and mindfulness. And concentration is really focusing on something. And I think it's very easy for those two to be in, co- in conflict, and yet those are both part of the meditation practice. If you concentrate on your breath, or you count them, it's focusing the mind. It creates, I think, a certain discipline to be in because the mind shuts around. But I think it's more of a means towards being able to get in touch with the presence in a way where it's, before we've analyzed it, before we've categorized it, That moment where we're just aware before we go off. Do something
5: with it. Yeah, my name is Andre. Following Johnny's question, how does your psychotherapy um, differ, let's say, from cognitive therapy influenced by your Buddhist practice?
9: A lot of what I've done in therapy has been, I think, somewhat similar and is, somewhat similar to cognitive therapy. I've never studied cognitive therapy, so I don't want to speak to it directly. My impression is that cognitive therapy is more about, um, you know, it's the idea of um, thoughts, it's, it's cognitive behavioral, is what they call it sometimes. And it's, it's not just about behavior, but how the mind works. To me, I guess I can't do it quickly, <laughs> to be quite honest. The way meditation has come in to me, and My understanding of meditation more recently, for instance, two things I talked to. One is, you know, again just being aware of where you are, being aware of the body. Often somebody's going on a date, for instance, you know. Or somebody is compulsively going to the park to have sex. That was one that was I worked with quite a bit, with one person. And rather than saying do or don't, because that doesn't usually do much good, it just complicates matters. I asked him to pay attention to how he felt before he went as well as how he thought. How he felt when he was there doing what he was doing <laughs> and any thoughts that came and then afterwards. Because in theory our experience is what's happening in the moment. But in reality there are three parts. There's the anticipation, which is a different moment. There's the actual event. And then there's what we do with it afterwards. And I find that when I worked with people who realize they start paying attention, the behavior shifts. It may stop, it may not stop, but it definitely shifts. Because it's moving from unconscious acting out to conscious choice as you become more aware of what you're doing.
0: Yeah?
2: Um, I'm just curious, as a <clears throat> spiritually oriented therapist, um, it's probably sort of more an open question for therapists, but the, the thought of working with people um, at the level of their personality versus at the level of maybe something else like their soul the essence, or whatever you might want to call it whether you roll that into work before or whether you keep strictly at the personality level
9: I don't know how to do that I don't know how to separate those things um. You know, I've studied therapy, I've been in therapy. What I bring to therapy is a lot of what I studied in my personality and who I am. I mean, the focus is on the other. You know, and so those boundaries, you know, don't exist as boundaries. So like the example of a cave, you know, it's a relatively concrete thing and there are behavioral things you can do with it. But I'm trying to work on multiple levels with people. And what I find when people have worked with me for a while, then well, it's like they're asking the questions themselves. They sometimes tell me I'm going, when I'm going off on a tangent, because one person is, part of his personality is shooting every direction. He says, wait a second, I'm supposed to do that, not you. <laughs> um, it's a two-way street, obviously. Um, I pick up from them, too. Um, so I don't know how to separate. To me, they're all integrated. Um, and not always yeah, on a conscious level. You know, I think of therapy as a certain level of science, but it's more of an art, the way I experience it, a creative process.
0: I just and kind of wanted to answer that. If, if you kind of deal with people on a cognitive level, when they come and they present, this is what I'm having difficulty, mm-hmm. this is what's not working for me, and you start asking those questions to help them be more mindful. Yeah of what they are doing, what's motivating them, whether it's really working for them if there's another kind of behavior. As they become more aware, the opportunity will probably be raised by them to discuss things of a spiritual nature, if they're inclined to do that. In earlier experiences of talking, when you sort of like try to go there before, they have raised the subject, they may not want to go there miss the opportunity to do some work that could be very practical assistance to them and leave the spiritual issues to surface as they probably will if they
9: remove some of the stuff. I do. I have become a lot more hesitant to even use the term spiritual. Like when a psychologist friend. what the hell does that mean? You know. Do I do spiritual shopping retreats? I mean, probably you not. Know, some people feel that way, you know. So I'm hesitant to do that. But I hear what you're saying because what you intervene with a person how you or how you engage a person depends on where they're coming from. Some people are relatively concrete-oriented. I used to, you know, I studied hypnosis and I used to um, initially put that out and I stopped because everybody wanted, wanted me to do them, to fix them. Um, you know, that was what it was. And even you know, and then I try to teach self hypnosis, and that didn't go very well. And I realized it's the same thing: the image of hypnosis is their mind stage, and they can be useful. But most people who are seeking hypnosis want somebody to come and fix them. And what I'm about is teaching you to fix you, because you're the expert. But helping you learn how to pay attention, that's what, and there are specific things I can say specific skill. Ben, what uh, you know? then, uh, I
6: was just thinking about uh, what my definition of mindfulness is, and part of it is part of it is really letting go, you know, letting go of um, the mind, the thoughts, and I think about it as letting go and not repressing the thoughts, like there I can't, you know, let my mind go off. You know, I allow my mind to go off. I also allow it to uh, take a break. And um, that has been a huge uh, benefit for me. And I also, earlier on you were talking about uh, taking as being selfish, and I had a discussion with someone recently about how hard it is for me to hear when people say nice things about me. My knee jerk is to uh, put up a wall and not believe it. I mean, sometimes it's actually dumbfounded. You know, why did they say that? You know, I really am actually dumbfounded. And um, so, you know, part of taking for me is to really open myself up. You know, when people offer small or or big compliments or praise, Um, you know, to take that, and I don't think that's a selfish thing at all, I think it's a real practice to um, make myself whole, and um, also maybe, you know, I I didn't think of it, but maybe to be more mindful of uh, praising people in small and big ways when the opportunity presents itself and not to overlook those times, you know. Um, I've done some uh, play directing, and the mindfulness for me there is to never pass up an opportunity to, you know, to compliment the actor and what they're doing. And it's a selfish reason; I want them to remember. (laughs) I want them to remember what they're doing. But um, it's also to to liberate them in some way, you know, to um, give them compliments. And there's also mindfulness about uh, giving um, negative feedback too. But if it's given as a gift and in a loving way, um, then it makes it makes it easier for me to give it, and it makes it easier for people to receive. But basically, I was thinking about the taking part and how really healthy that is to be able to take um, not to grab, but.
2: I was going to ask about um, mindfulness and handling the very kind of deep um, habitual patterns that you have from your childhood. Almost this, these these things that are are so part of you that it's that it's uh, almost your posture against the world. It's not necessarily associated with the thought. It's just it's almost your stance, how you see yourself in the world. So
9: basic and such a core part of you, how do you use mindfulness for this really deep childhood? And well, <laughs> part of it is, and the initial part is paying attention and being aware and being aware of any judgments that come up with it. I mean, obviously what we do in therapy is we push, we go to try to make those connections. You know, when I first did therapy I didn't take history in people at all because I believed everything that you've had is with you today on some level and I still think it's true but I found doing history made it easier for me <laughs> because then when you talk about something I could say oh, and when you were five and this happened you know, or I can help them start making those connections I find that when I can connect in my own life to how I'm stuck today to something earlier somehow or other something shifts and it may be just because I'm making sense out of it It may be because by releasing some stuck place in the past, I'm now free today, but it does not. But when it goes that deep, often you need to connect back. It's useful to connect back to it. But in the immediate sense, to be aware, and to be aware of the judgment that comes in, and to be curious about it. Just like when you were talking about difficulty taking in. Well, I think it's good to experiment, maybe just not pushing away. Maybe you don't have to take in a conflict, maybe you can just let it be with you and see how it feels and what feels good or not good about it or or real or unreal. Maybe we don't have to sort of force feed ourselves. You haven't spoken yet. My name is Asa.
11: Asa. And um, related to that last question, is this idea for me of role, Um, it's not only that I have these early childhood experiences, but uh, my entire, my family and my environment, my community, my culture helps me define a role that I'm to play in society. And part of that role comes out of my physical um, definition of being male and um, my culture and, and my race, And what I'm beginning to understand is that both something inside of myself and the world outside of me conspire to maintain that role. And um, the way I interact with the world is a way that I create or come to an awareness of understanding. But the question has to do more with expanding outside of the role of race and culture. Of course, one of the things that it seems to me that the folks uh, that attend your retreat, certainly here at the Sangha, have um, this homosexuality, this gayness in in, in common. And there's a lot of pain and suffering that's Mm -hmm. associated with coming to awareness for myself of being homosexual, being gay. And... um, So that's something I have to struggle with. So that's a common thing that I have here. So the thing has to do with how I engage socially to transcend uh, the role that people will remind me that I'm supposed to be playing, even though I choose not to play it, whether it's my gender or whether it's my race or my, or or in terms of uh, economics, you know, social class. So I find, I find that you know, when I lived in the East, you know, I went to Fire Island, I did all the things that gay people do, and then I came to California and do all the things that gay people do. How do I transcend that? Because for me, Buddhism talks about, <coughs> one of the things Buddhism talks about is right view. And the reality is those structures and those roles are not really who I am. And I'm just wondering, with that in mind, being within the context of, of a gay sangha, How how do is is there something that we're missing by maybe defining or identifying more closely with those roles that Buddhism allows us? Mindfulness allows us to transcend.
9: Again, I think it's a great question. (laughs) Questions, I guess. Um, I think the perspective of questioning, not necessarily pushing away the questioning, I think, is where I keep coming back to. that make that comes from the practice and mindfulness you start paying attention to more in this questioning you know you know that interaction when somebody sees you in one of one of your half way you know and the powerful place within us that respond to it because it, it's known we're familiar with that space and even when both people want to change it it can be very difficult to change yeah you know, many years ago I worked in Berkeley in this mental health group practice and we had some consultant who talked talk, and I was new there, and they wanted me to speak up more. And I would just usually let the loudmouths talk and just throw them in fucking my thought. So when the next meeting came up, they got stuck around talking, dealing with somebody, and I mentioned something. There was like 30 seconds of silence, and then one of the key characters said basically the same thing, and everybody told them how wonderful what he said was. And then I did open my mouth, you know, because these were all mental health workers. Everybody's the agenda was for me to speak up more. But when I spoke up, I wasn't heard. So even though I did it, but when I spoke up about not being heard, things shifted. I don't think there's an overall answer to each situation, but being aware of it, and for me, I know one of the things is not just um, not getting stuck in a role, but also not reacting to it. Because it's a place, in me, you know, that will react. When I was a kid, I had a crew cut all the time. Everybody was getting longer hair. My father liked a crew cup, but one of the reasons I kept it is because everyone else was doing long hair. <laughs> it was a stuck place, because it was a reactive place, just as much as going along with the crowd. <clears throat> but I hope that helps out.
7: Jimmy? Yeah. Uh, my name is Jim, and I'm, um, I'm interested in um, the phenomena that many of the most mindful people I know are not meditators or Buddhists, they're just alert. And present, and uh, to suggest, and I mean, in my, in my case, I have to meditate to stay civil. <laughs> uh, here, here. <laughs> um, and I'm interested in the natural, natural occurring mindfulness that we see in our lives. I recently at a family reunion saw my brother in law was pitching soccer pitches to his grandsons, and not only did they love him and love any ball. And playing with balls, but the four-year-old, as he approached his kick, he was—he was a Zen master. He was completely present. He was his body, his—you uh, could just see him ground himself and be, and his mind just get out of the way. He was at one with his joy, and at one with the kick he was going to make. And it was awesome to see this intact phenomenon, and he was completely unconscious of it.
8: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, you know, do we all have that? I mean, this is not a gay boy. Um, and I know it. For I was, you know, looking at the scans and thinking, oh, I'm in big trouble, you know, and this kid has none of that. Um, but I just see it in a different way. And musicians, people who don't know how to count, they're very present. Um, and I, I just, I think there's a world of different training devices, and maybe meditation is specifically designed for people who can't turn it off. Um, and that's what's most helpful but I, I just uh, I'm enjoying extending my um, awareness of how mindfulness occurs
9: I'll just briefly two things we yeah. got. one is, you know, the title of, of one of the first books I read was Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind mm-hmm. and basically talking about um, you know, enlightenment is being realized because it's something that's already there mm-hmm. that we all start with that basic presence and we learn other things. And where I've come to it is that the difference between the so-called enlightened mind versus the beginning mind is you have that presence, but with more awareness mm-hmm. than the beginning mind does, because mm-hmm. you go through all the in between I <coughs> Um And I think there are other practices. Mm-hmm. I think with music, I think that's clearly people get into the music, and you know, it, it's just a real focusing, the concentration. Mm-hmm. It's a mindfulness, but it tends to be very focused in certain mm-hmm. ways. Um, and you know, I, I, if I wasn't meditating, I tend to lose track of everything. I get more disorganized. I you know, emotionally get disorganized. I uh, you know, I have a lot more problems in my life. So when I'm practicing more, because I'm more mindful, it's a little different than you. So, yes. Uh, this is kind of training
0: with the last two questions. We're learning from neuroscience, for instance, that we notice something before we notice it. Uh, the the brain is already doing things before we are aware of it and I'm wondering if mindfulness isn't uh, or a very economical way of saying mindfulness is interrupting the reactivity however one might do it and listening to music might be one way
2: or practicing practicing as an athlete would, practicing as a musician would uh, maybe even as a mathematician so any kind of
0: something that's not so much reactive, but goes against that, stops it, um, uh, interrupts it? Meditation would,
9: I don't know. I don't think there's been... There's a lot of new stuff in neuroscience, and I've read some of it, and I've always taken the stuff with a bit of a grain of salt. It's changed. I used to think that neurons, you can get neurons that didn't change once you reach a certain age. Now they know that's not true. So as you learn new things, you're actually changing the physical structure of the brain. Well, duh, that makes sense. I think it's a back and forth process between mind and body. Um, and there's stuff I was taking this workshop on obsessions or uh, compulsions and about how the brain encodes certain information. And if you go A B C, once you hit A, you're going to go to C. So someone who uses speed is going to be having sex. Saying, you know, or maybe the other way around. I don't think they've studied that well enough to know how you break that process break it apart so that the first trigger doesn't automatically set the neurons onto the last mm-hmm. but maybe more with consciousness there may be an impulse but you don't necessarily follow the impulse yes um,
10: well, there were two things I wanted to say um, well, I, I don't know your name mine Yes. Uh, David. David. And, uh, please. Um, I think, just speaking for myself, trying to change any behavior that's deeply rooted, what I've realized is that there's always this kind of ritual, it's not like I just do the behavior, there's all this kind of prep work that happens. This kind of, And it's interesting, I've observed how it's very similar, it, it's like a ritualized Event that happens, and just noticing the couple steps before helps me kind of, you know, be aware and prevent doing a certain behavior. And there's a certain ritual afterwards as well, like shame or guilt, or usually those kinds of emotions. And um, also recognizing how there are people or environments that kind of also ritualize the event, and sometimes just removing yourself, or even asking people, oh, you know, I'm trying to change this behavior, could you please not do this? You know, I think it has been really helpful for me. Um, and the other question I wanted to ask is, you talked about being present as either being aware of your thoughts or a state of just sensory input before categorizing, um, like this is a man, this is a black shirt, and that kind of state. I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering how that's beneficial. It's kind of similar. I think it's very really similar to what he was talking about, like people who play music or. I think any kind of more creative um, activity, especially if you've done if you've done it for like several years, like dancing, where it just becomes innate. You
9: know, I was thinking about this earlier in terms of mindfulness, because it's the idea that you, put the value of being able to perceive just what is, whether it's a physical perception or the internal the feelings that come up with it. <coughs> isn't that you should shut them off necessarily or not go there, but before you put someone or something in a box to be able to see it in a native state, gives you to, you're you able to see more. The expert's mind is very narrow. The beginner's mind is very wide. That's something Suzuki Roshi wrote something like that about you know, in the, in the expert's mind, they can see very specifically what's going on in front of them, but they don't see the context. Medicine is what I think of. My father had been traveling and came back and he had some chest pains and he was coughing and he was going to go to a clinic but his friend told him to go to a specialist. It sounded like a heart problem which it did anyway. He wound up in the hospital from the heart medicine etc etc and when they came back it turned out nothing to do with his heart. He had a parasite in his lungs from traveling and he had permanent lungs. He lost 10% of his lungs at the time. He, if he had gone to the generalist, the open mind who were looking at everything, that would have been resolved for him. He went to the expert. The expert didn't see it.
8: Yeah. Hi, uh, this is a good topic. I really heard a lot of a lot of great things in here this morning. Thanks. You know, but you know mindfulness. Uh, I know when I don't have it. You know, I know when I'm really out of it. You know, and, but I'm not paying attention. And over many years of meditating, I uh, I discovered that it really comes down to paying attention. You know, paying attention to my breath, or paying attention to how I'm slicing the onions in the kitchen, you know, or paying attention to how I'm tying my shoelaces. But those are all moments of mindfulness. You know. Those are all moments of, um, you know, paying attention, paying attention, to what I'm doing. You know, you know but it, 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 where we live and how we live, you know, uh, doesn't support. Me. And, um, and I find, you know, like, uh, talking blows in my mind almost. Like, I didn't pay attention to talking all the time. So I have to t- talk less. You know, talk less. The other thing that you mentioned, Dave, which I thought was really, really interesting is questioning. You know, I think, you know a lot of us are educated on the question to college, and you ask a lot of questions, you got a good career, and you moved on. This inquiring mind, you know, keeps going. But that has nothing to do, with just being still, and being quiet, and sitting there, and practicing. Because it's really all about practice. It's really all about practicing. Really all about practicing. And like, for me, writers write, artists think. You know, and I'm <laughs> I'm very lucky that in the last ten years I've been some County. Uh I've been able to meditate daily mm. in the morning and in the evening, you know. And I, and I I noticed the difference, you know, and I, and I noticed notice the difference in how I time my choices, you know. <laughs> you know, small things, you know. Small things but, but uh but that I am uh, more present just by being still and being quiet. <clears throat> so I don't really have a question
9: I know. I just would say, I can remember the first time when I meditated that aha feeling. It was a good feeling, it was also a thinking feeling. <laughs> you know, and since then it's been meditating and not meditating. But... I got it that this was about there was something so basic in it.
5: The um, as, uh, as I've expanded the idea of uh, whatever it is the reality is, for example, I've had to accept the sun as part of my body because I'm as dependent on the sun as I am on my heart or any other thing in my body. And uh, how do you see these wonderful pictures about uh, quantum foam and dancing molecules and all the rest of it? And I know that I sit here, I'm as dependent on the air around me as anything else, or the moisture, and I have to carry that on and say that I'm dependent on the oceans and everything else, so that there really isn't any me that can be defined or sit here. If it is anything, it's everything. Uh, and I think that's a view that's coming up the more we learn about our physical space and our microspace and what they're telling us from Berkeley and it's a, it's outstanding, but essentially it's mysterious. There's just nobody home at all. <laughs> <laughs> now, <may> <laughs> but I can report that the less you remember of line, and the older you get, the more fun it is sometimes. I can always say, you know, when somebody comes to you, do you remember when we tricked in New York back in 19, blah, 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 you just, you know, you have to say, well, uh, I'm sorry, I wasn't there. <laughs> 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 you made not of it. Well, in any sense, that I, wasn't there. I wasn't there. Certainly the one that I thought that was there then. Uh, I had to maintain the idea of was like, some kind of floating mystery that upsets some people, <laughs> I mean, We're I mean, all glad to see you. The sun and the universe and all the rest of it, star, gosh, uh, <laughs> sitting there having a wonderful meal,
9: can't take it off to the <laughs> sun now. But when you say that, it was one of the other things I was thinking in terms of practice and mindfulness is coming here to this location. Um, a lot of you are old enough to remember when the 21st Street Baths were around here,
6: mm-hmm.
9: just a short down the end of the block. You know. And I was thinking, well, how mindful was I then? <laughs> you know. And it was interesting because it was in and out because I would go there and I was very present. Um, and how much it was that fantasy, and how much that was, I don't know, you know, a practice of I being with somebody. There was, it was just, because there were moments even there where there was a connection with somebody, where there was the erotic energy, but there was also some back and forth that was very powerful, sometimes verbal, sometimes not verbal. You learned
5: something from it was a
9: teaching. As
1: long as you're paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, David, but I am being yeah. mindful of the time, <laughs> and, and there's probably time for a question or two more. Larry, I um, this
7: has
1: been a very interesting uh, time here together, and I, I want to appreciate you for having the kind of dialogue and sharing, not just the speaking. So I, I thank you very much. And uh, I'm curious is that you've had a really long career in. Psychotherapy and you know uh, focusing on gay men, what you find to be um, either different. Well, I don't know if you have a comparison between gay men and the general population, but what are the some of the biggest themes that people come to you for as gay men? As
9: gay men, well, first of all, the biggest things people come for me to me for are the same things that come to anyone else for: self-esteem, relationships, um, that sort of thing. Um, Fundamentally, um, is always there. Um, it used to be a lot more around homophobia. I find it comes, but it's a lot less, uh, at least directly. Um, some of the stuff is about establishing relationships. I guess it's, it's the subtler levels of homophobia to it, establishing a relationship with another man, you know, and making values, you know, values around that, um, and the standard stuff with drugs and um, other compulsions is always coming through. But underneath that, again, it starts moving to what we call spiritual stuff. Because all that stuff is acting out, trying to get something, and getting a glimpse of something in a way that's stuck. Because I think even when people use drugs, you can get a glimpse of something very powerful. But how do you make that your life? Other going to take a long time. Just a
5: little bit of an add-on. You mentioned
1: the term acting out about three or four times. Can you define that?
9: Well, the simplest way is acting in a way which is unconscious and probably not in your best interest.
7: Um, And repetitive. It tends to be repetitive, yeah.
8: I just want to say that I attended Dave's meditation retreat for the last 10 years. And uh, what happened there is that you have a chance to have the option to be silent for three days in a row. If you want to, you don't have to talk to anybody at all for that time. All the meals are silent. You know? And the house is silent most of the time. But it's user-friendly in that if you're walking in the dining hall or you're out on the trail, you can talk. You know? So a lot of that goes on. You know? There are regular sittings all day long. So you have an opportunity to, to practice. But at the same time, you know, have a relief. We have a one-hour discussion by this about the practice every night, you know. So, uh, I guess that's what I just wanted to say something about the retreat, because you mentioned it right. And you know, it's interesting, because mindfulness came up at one event, if I have a minute here to tell you, one of these silent meals, you know. Uh, you know, it's like our feelings and our emotions are, are wonderful, you know, but, uh, you know, if you're being mindful, you know, the emotions in a way get in the way somehow, you know. And one of the persons at the dinner table started crying. And I mean, really crying, you know. And uh, nobody stopped what they were doing. We all continued to eat. Nobody comforted him. He just uh, stopped crying. Later on, it turns out because It was the the taste of the broccoli or something. (laughs) (laughs) It was a (laughs) sautéed (laughs) pine (laughs) nuts.
9: Anyway, Dave, do
1: you have any concluding remarks?
9: And the answer is... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, nothing much. I'm glad you told that story.
1: Well, thank, thank you very you. much. Uh, i want like to call for any announcements. Have any announcements?
4: Yeah. It, no, a couple of announcements. In um, the past season, we've, we've done uh, movie night, GDF movies, and um, I, I want to organize one for the, the Michael Moore movie, Sicko, which I'd really like to see. I have flyers. I, I, I picked a date uh, this coming Friday, July 6th. So if anybody's interested in doing in the GDF audience, we've seen that movie. Um, the flyers will meet us at the place and you know, maybe have coffee afterwards. Whatever. Which movie?
7: Uh, Sicko. Is that Michael oh, Moore, Moore. documentary? Uh, yeah, i yeah.
5: have, have Into Deep Silence played here?
4: Yes. Yeah, so it's gone. Go. OK, uh, and uh, one other thing. Uh, we have an ongoing, we we have uh, now it's two dinners a month at the Locker Street Youth Center. Um, and it's, it's just, for, it's, that's a center for, for young adults, I mean late teens to very early twenties, who, who are homeless and out in the streets and dealing all sorts of um, challenging issues. And so we, we do a dinner for them. And, and again, we just graduate twice a month, we do it once a month for about seven months. Um so if you want to volunteer on that, I I, I had one and Bill Weber had the other one. If people want, want to volunteer for that, you know, just see me. What are the Sundays or the, the Saturday nights? It's always the third and fourth Saturdays of the month.
7: Any other announcements?
5: Yeah.
7: Yeah, uh, next week our speaker is uh, Sean Fight, who is uh, involved in the Bhasna and Zen, lived in Burma, um, is an expert on Buddhist chanting, and he's going to lead us in the next portion of that. Right. Yes. Uh,
2: this went uh, on the listserv, but I went yesterday. There is a. Um, an exhibit of uh, relics that is traveling the world. That is at this Tibetan Center at 399 Webster at Webster and Oak. The actual relics of the Buddha himself and his attendants and, and his disciples and through the ages. It's quite powerful. Today's the last day. It ends at five, and it's right at, like I say, at uh, Webster and Oak at this uh, Tibetan Buddhist Center. So. Uh, they also have a person who will give you a blessing with the relics if you want to um, it's a, it's a pretty powerful seeing I mean these relics are what they are is after the cremation of these enlightened beings um, there are like little pearls when they sift through the bones and the ashes that are uh, left and so there it's the Maitreya project is what this is all about and there's going to be a big Statue of the Buddha Maitreya that's going to be erected in India, where these relics will be placed in the heart of the statue uh, in the next couple of years. So, anyway, it's today's the last day. Todd, did you have the next
0: from the host today? Great, I'm looking for the last. Who are the new members today? Anyone new? Yes. So, there's muffins uh, that are not vegan, and there's fruit salad out there. I'm um, going to be coming around with a Donna Bowl, um, asking for donations, suggested donation was 5 to $8, and um, um, there's tea, please wash out your teacup if you use it, and place it on the shelf to dry. Um, some people get together afterwards and go out to lunch, and they'll gather toward the front of the building, only around 12.30.
1: Um, and there's also a uh, sign-up sheet, if you're
7: new and you want to sign up and get our newsletter, you can go on there, and there's also a sign-up for the directory, and uh, that's it.
1: Great. Uh, that would just about conclude everything. But just so everybody knows, at the Post always announces these things, but I'm not sure that people are aware uh, that out on the counter are these, not only is the Dawn of Old there, uh, but there's a little overview of the Gay Buddhist Fellowship, take one, if it's useful to you or your friends. Uh, there's usually out there uh, the most recent uh, newsletter and you can have email to you, but or mail to you, but there's a hard copy available for those who haven't had either one. The sign-up sheet looks like this. Please sign up. Uh, the, uh, your, your signature and information will be transmitted to Todd, and he'll put it in a, a, a listing where we can get in touch with you via email if that's what you'd like. And finally, uh so if we'd like to have your name and address and whatever uh added to the membership list, hard copy membership list, we will do that. Uh there is also some attention to um, activities that you might be involved in that would be of uh interest to other members. So I encourage you to do that if you feel uh so why
4: But there's also a Yahoo group, which is really a good way to get the yes. information out uh for an event like this or like one of those <coughs> So, Yeah. Uh, oh, okay, so it's so, Gay Buddhist Fellowship. So I encourage people to want to know what's going on or have a means of having been contacted to join the group. There's a link from the org website to the
7: Yahoo group. Oh, okay. Uh, and maybe one last thing. I promise the
1: last thing. Uh, <laughs> the, the, gate, the the website is about to be updated. It's great right now, but you, if you haven't visited, visit it and uh, and notice how it will be evolving in, in future weeks. Here, it's it's uh, there's a lot of information there. So maybe if we can gather for the dedication there.
4: By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness, may all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow, may all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow, and may all live in equanimity, without too much attachment or too much aversion, and live believing in the equality of all that live.